Don't mind if you hear the sound of a Blu-ray burner in the background. <laughs> Not that I'm burning Blu-rays. Uh, I'm actually burning DVDs. Actually, I'm burning PlayStation 2 games, of all things. Uh, boy, you know, I got to tell you, there was a, a, a trilogy, shall we say, of no, and I'm not talking about the great PlayStation trilogy, that being uh, Colony Wars or uh, or the other great PlayStation trilogy, Ark the Lad, which actually ended up having two sequels on the PlayStation 2. Not talking about any of that. No, no. Uh, the trilogy I'm talking about is kind of an impromptu trilogy, and that is Midway Arcade Treasures. Look, let me tell you. If you have a PlayStation 2, okay, <laughs> or, or an emulator, if you're running an emulator, and you have these three collections, which is all these arcade games from Midway, you have, you have a gaming library that will last you, nay, a lifetime. I mean, you have to almost, or you have like three of the Mortal Kombat games, which are worth it alone. You've got uh, Primal Rage, you have Hydro Thunder, you've got, uh, oh man, and this is the best part, San Francisco Rush 2049, but it's the Dreamcast version that has that battle mode that'll have you playing for fucking ever. That, I, like, I could never get sick of that game, it's insane. Uh, I mean, and, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there, there's classics on there too, Wizard of War, a whole bunch of them. If you have those three games, you, I mean... You're going to entertain you and your friends for fucking ever. I'm, I'm, I'm so not kidding. The only thing is, I don't think the... I wonder if the four-player version works for... I'll have to test this out, because I have the, the four-port adapter for, for the PS2. But the, the four... Uh, you know, the Dreamcast had four controller ports, right? And that would allow you to do a four-player split-screen of San Francisco Rush 2049. Again, it's the battle mode. I mean, the, the racing mode's great, too. You know, and if you ever actually played that in the uh, in the arcades by the way this is your voltron season seven review but we're just opening up with some shit uh but if you ever played rush 2049 or san francisco rush 2049 in arcades wow was that a hell of a thing and you remember you could put in your pin like there was a dial pad on it and everything and you could upload your scores to like an uh you know to a global database oh fuck was that some good times there might be some uh some classic stallion action in that if that database still exists somewhere but though it probably doesn't but anyway you know that in the BDSM studios, there's always something going on <laughs> in this <laughs> with some of the machines in here. They're always doing something. Uh, and it, right now it happens to be doing that. But anyway, uh, whoo. Uh, so, you know, before we get into. So, yes, this is your season seven review for Voltron Legendary Defender, the uh, Netflix exclusive series produced by DreamWorks. Uh, before we get into that, we're also going to talk about Volume 1 and Volume 2 of the Legendary uh, Defender uh, comic book series from Lion Forge Comics. Uh, what an apropos name. Um, but that'll come later. But before we get into that, there is another, uh, shall we say, 80s remake. I, wouldn't, I, I hate that these terms are so... They, they've really fucked with these terms. So, reboot. I've talked about this before. But... You know, if you're like continuing a series, say that started in the 80s and then you're like doing effectively a new season or it's a it's a sequel show or something like that. Normally, we would call that kind of a restart um, or a continuation. But now they seem to use the word reboot for that sort of thing. OK, where mean reboot, meaning that you're you're kicking the universe back into gear, not that you've reimagined it or remade it, but that you're just getting it going again uh, after a decade or two. And so but I'm so used to using the word reboot to mean that, like, you're literally restarting the entire universe and you're making up your own effectively. 
so reimagining might be the term that has because remake I, I think works but you know reimagining also I think might be actually the best technical term for this sort of thing so Voltron Legendary Defender of course is a reimagining of the classic 80s cartoon series which was really based off of a couple different Japanese anime in fact tremendous ones uh, but particularly uh, Beast King Go Lion uh, which is a brilliant brilliant anime and i might talk about that on the upcoming wednesday q a because someone asked me what are my favorite anime well beast king go line is certainly uh, right up there uh, with some of my favorites uh, and actually i'm i also i love 80s voltron you know i mean i absolutely love it and at some point we'll talk more about 80s voltron i'm sure uh in an episode on patreon but this is your review of season seven of voltron uh, but before i get into that Okay, I do want to talk about there is another reimagining and oh, yes, it is a reimagining in the strongest sense of that term from the 1980s. And that is there's going to be a new She-Ra cartoon. Now, initially, when I heard the news, I was very excited. Well, apparently a trailer came out. I don't know how I how I missed the trailer. I don't know how I didn't hear about it. Um, But anyway, I finally saw the trailer for it. And the show is called She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, plural princesses. As to where before, Shira was called Shira Princess of Power. That was the original 80s show. And of course, the show is an offshoot of He Man and the Masters of the Universe, uh, another cartoon that I'm a big fan of. Um, in ways, I always liked Shira a little better. I thought Hordak was an even more badass character than Skeletor. Um, and and there, there were some other aspects to it that I thought were, were really, really cool. Um, it didn't hurt that, uh, well, I'll be honest with you here, or I'll be frank with you. Uh, The first gal that I ended up having sex with and who was my best friend for a very long time, um, and we would actually end up having a relationship later on again in life, too. But anyway, she uh, she was a huge fan of She-Ra and she was blonde. You know, she had the whole thing. And we anyway, (laughs) just saying that She-Ra holds memories for me and it has uh, has importance in my mind. Um, This this new show by DreamWorks looks horrible and I mean just looks absolutely horrible and it's sad because it feels like it's two steps back for for the respect that 80s franchises seem to be getting Uh, particularly the respect certainly that Voltron Legendary Defender has shown um, for this franchise and I mean holy shit is that some respect Uh, and it's and look it's not like Voltron's always been respected there was the uh, was the Voltron show was this Voltron Space Force or something whatever it was that came out in the aughts, the early aughts, on Nickelodeon. That was horrendous. I mean, it was absolutely terrible. Fucking teenage bullshit. Uh, and or, or I shouldn't even say teenage, uh, preteen bullshit, frankly. Uh, that, that was really horrible. And this She-Ra and the Princesses of Power looks like the same thing. It looks like preteen horseshit. And you can say, and here's the thing, okay? So when you watch, I, all right, let me, let me describe a little bit about it. It... Like, She-Ra is not a woman in this. She's clearly, like, a younger teenage gal, okay? And it's probably going to be more comedic than it is serious, you know, action taking on Hordak and whatnot, okay? As to where in the 80s cartoon, She-Ra was a full-on... I mean, she was younger, but she was a, she was a woman. You know, she was a full-on woman, and so were... And all the other characters were adults and so on. And it was great stuff and a wildly popular cartoon, no question about it. Now, the toys were certainly sold off towards a younger crowd, um, and definitely the storylines and everything were kind of basic and certainly geared towards a younger crowd as well. Not going to not gonna argue with that at all. Okay, but 
Here's the thing that annoys the fuck out of me. And I've talked about this with with a lot of different things. And and actually, uh, like the Thundercats, cart, the new Thundercats cartoon and so on kind of leads leads into this. Um, but the infantilization of a lot of this stuff, you know, I am not saying and I mean this by no means am I saying that there shouldn't be content, that there shouldn't be uh, uh, media geared towards younger people. Sure, there should be. But I there's no need for like, like why why make it something just for them? Especially considering that most of your younger people are getting raised by adults, right? You know, I mean, this is it's a family situation. So make something that kind of everybody that I mean, I am more amenable to something that everybody can enjoy. And not only that, not that it's something necessarily that everybody could enjoy, right? But I think that when we constantly make content, when we constantly make media that is specifically like geared and what's the word I I want to use here I'm trying to think let's see uh <laughs> you know something that that edifies how about that that edifies like that that preteen kind of angle that preteen age you know I mean people never want to grow I think it really like lends people to not wanting to really grow up as to where before, you know, you had She-Ra and she was a full on woman and you wanted to become or like with He-Man, you know, you wanted to become a man. You wanted to become a woman. You know, you wanted to grow up and you it was something to aspire to as to where I feel like a lot of this, you know, preteen horseshit has nothing to aspire to. And look, you can do this. I mean, you take take Star Wars, for example. OK, you can do Star Wars Rebels. You can grow up with the characters or take uh, the Clone Wars an even better example. Star Wars Clone Wars. You can grow up with the characters. Okay, like you can, you know, you can still have Anakin, who's an older guy. You can have Obi-Wan, who's an older guy, you know, and you can appreciate them and want to be like them and want, you know, and you look forward to getting older instead of thinking that, oh, I always want to stay young, like, I don't know, preteen fucking She-Ra. It's just. Again, I don't mind if you want to make stuff that's kind of tame and censored and, you know, isn't going all out. I mean, certainly I agree that the original Shiro was made pretty sexy and there could be problems with that, you know, I mean, where she's got, you know, I mean, there's cleavage and, you know, she's got full makeup on and all this stuff. Like, I can understand if someone wants to complain about those issues. I get it. All right. But there's no real reason to make characters this way. I don't know. I was just I was very disappointed to see this because and, and I'm still like I'm still pissed off about this because back in like 0304 there was a tremendous and I'm or no maybe it was 02. There was a fucking yeah, it was 02. There was a fucking awesome He-Man reimagining done by the car, by Cartoon Network. And I mean it was great. The animation was top-notch. It's about the best thing the, the only two next to Voltron Legendary Defender and what Cartoon Network did with ThunderCats, which was also th- th- what they did with ThunderCats back in I think this was like 2011. That reimagining was brilliant and like it had moral stories. It had the whole thing. It was really great. I mean, these are some of the best reimaginings done. You can do reimaginings right. I'm not just complaining because it's not She-Ra. I'm saying you can do reimaginings right that can be, you know, really inspirational for kids and fun for kids, but then also can appeal to, uh, you know, an, a built-in audience that remembers these things fondly, you know, like myself. And they're just dropping the fucking ball and fuck them. 
You know, it's like what they did with Lost in Space. They're just completely, you know, I mean, is He-Man ever going to be in this or is that going to be, is that going to be some kind of problem? I, it's just <laughs> because He-Man's going to have to be a man. You know, I'm, I, I hate to say it. Like he's going to have to be an adult and oh shit, you, you know, we, we can't do that. Uh, fortunately, Voltron Legendary Defender has not fallen prey to any of this kind of horseshit. Uh, in fact, if anything, Voltron Legendary Defender, like as we see uh, at the end of, of season six and going into season seven of Voltron Legendary Defender uh, with the character of Shiro, who, which, by the way, spoiler alerts, ahoy. I mean, there's just going to be tons of spoilers here. OK, uh, but trust me, you could know everything that's going to happen in season seven of Voltron Legendary Defender. You still have to see it because the action is so hot and it's so intense. I mean, you, you have to experience it. Nobody could, t- you know, it's like the old Matrix line. Nobody can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. You've got to see season seven of Legendary Defender for yourself. But this actually really I mean, you have characters that are old, that are heroes. I mean, really old. We're talking people that are clearly in their 60s. Shiro, who comes back, ends up like he, he has gray hair now, you know, like he ages significantly, it, it appears. Um, and you have, I mean, other character, Keith, of course, has aged out of his, you know, out of his teenage uh, years and everything. I mean, there's this show actually gives you like adult characters to fucking root for. And in fact, not even just adult characters, but hell, your grandparents could watch it and then say, oh, yeah. You could be granddad, you know, and, and kicking an ass and taking on the Galra. I mean, that's awesome. And not only that, but because Voltron Legendary Defender is willing to play with adult themes and appeal to adults, okay, and to mature fucking people, even though I admit there aren't many of those out there, uh, you know, you can have where now we know, and again, spoiler alerts, folks, but that Shiro is gay. Granted, they kind of dropped the ball on it being more explicit, but it's there, and you know that he had a lover named Adam and everything, and, and of course, that character dies, and he has to deal with that. Um, I, I know they didn't do the best job of representing uh, you know, Shiro's uh, homosexuality on screen. Um, but I do appreciate that they at least tried and they admitted, interestingly enough, um, the creators of the show at a, um, at a convention admitted that there are certain things. And I mean, and it points at this problem of when you gear things entirely towards children, um, that, you know, you get you, there's limitations and they admitted that there were limitations on what they could show, honestly, as far as the homosexuality, but they still get to hint stuff in and myself. I mean, I'm kind of used to that because since the eighties, really both musically and in other forms of meat of multimedia, uh, and into the nineties, even like I've had to, you know, we've had to deal with that. Things had to be sneaky, right? Like you couldn't write a pop song that, you know, Cindy Lauper can't just write a pop song about masturbation. She has to hide it in a song called she right? You know, we have to hide these things and we're still unfortunately in that world and it's a shame look i'm not saying that kids need to see you know mature or you know erotic content or something like that that's not what i'm saying at all but i am saying that kids are fucking brilliant and yes they are they're smarter than most adults okay and they can handle seeing more slightly more adult themed stuff uh and i think that if you know chiro was more openly gay and we got a kiss between him and adam Kids can handle that. And I think that would have been all right. OK, you know, that that's that's fine to me. So anyway, uh, but I mean, but that's nice. And also, you know, there were hints of lesbianism. Um, and of course, you, you have the character of Pidge slash Katie, who uh, 
you know, pretended to be, I mean, <laughs> I don't think it's necessarily gender dysphoria, but it's kind of playing with that. And I think that that's great too. Uh, you know, the Voltron can do all this, but I mean, the, you know, those creators at the convention made the point abundantly clear that when you gear this stuff towards kids, there's stuff that's, that you can't touch. And we're not talking about eroticism. We're just talking about straight up the way that relationships can be put on display and the way that, you know, grown up relationships can be done. And that's a problem as to where, and I, and I don't think that should be, I think kids can handle this shit just like kids can handle an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine where, you know, Jad Zia's making out with a woman or whatever, you know, I mean, like, the, the, this, this, is, this is okay, you know, I mean, you don't have to go explicit, I understand you don't want kids to see that, of course, but you can, ha- they can handle this shit, and, and, and anyway, I'm glad Voltron at least tries, and they, they go, they, they push the envelope as much as they can, I can appreciate that. Season seven was definitely pushing the envelope here, and I want to finally start breaking into the season a lot more. Um, season eight is something that we are confirmed for, and that is going to be the last season, uh, as far as I know, unless Netflix decides to do something else. Um, and that's a shame, because I think the show could go, I mean, even after seeing season seven, because the taste that you're left with at the end of season seven, because it is so intense, so action packed is holy fuck. What could they do next? Like, where do you go from here? <laughs> you know, when, when you go when you've gone that far, you either have to. And usually in storytelling and as I as a creator, writer and storyteller, I know how this works. Usually you have to either like scale back really hard and let people calm down for a minute and then in the following season you can get back to full intensity usually that's what you have to do but i don't know what they're going to do with season eight Uh, i mean because again this this season was just so intense and you didn't think it could get more intense boy they fucking pulled it off in season seven um but yeah we will be getting a season eight i don't know when season eight's going to drop uh i can't imagine maybe into 2019 i don't know um, the comic book series, the volume three of the comic book series that they're running right now, they're into issue three. Issue five should drop before December. So if they launched it in December, I think that'd be pretty nice. And that would also work well because the uh, what I usually review when I review uh, one of the seasons of Voltron. Um, I usually review it with also the Godzilla uh, anime trilogy that Netflix has been putting out there, which has been tremendous. Uh, The third Godzilla movie in that trilogy is actually going to drop in December as well. So if we got season eight of that and then we also got that Godzilla trilogy uh, and we wrap up volume three of the uh, Voltron Legendary Defender comic book, that would be I mean, that that'd be a really nice one, two, three punch right there. Uh, So maybe that'll be a review that we'll end up doing in December. Uh, So, yeah, anyway, for for a couple months. In any case, you you know, we're not going to be talking about Voltron at all, where it seems like we've been able to talk about it every month because they've been dropping these seasons like crazy. Uh, but part of the reason they were able to do that, of course, is that seasons, I guess, four, five, three, four, five and six, I think all three of those were very short seasons. They were really like seasons cut in half where there are only like six or seven episodes a pop. Uh, this is a what is now considered a full season, I guess. Uh, is 13 episodes okay so this was a more fuller season hopefully season eight will be the same thing uh, where we will get 13 episodes because i want every drop of this show that i can possibly get especially after this season even though i have no fucking clue where they're going to go next i mean i know i like i this ends with a bit of a cliffhanger but i don't know like like what storytelling mode or, or or theme that they're you know whatever that or how they're going to run that like I, I just don't know how they're going to keep up this pace uh, that they've set this tone that they've set in season seven so anyway let's start talking about season seven and again uh, spoiler alerts abound 
But season seven has Voltron and the Voltron Force, um, just you know the Paladins, right? Uh, just coming off of their major battle with Lotor and his kind of version of Voltron, as it were, which I think holds some importance to kind of a mystery that ends up at the end of season seven. But uh, but we're coming off of that, and it turns out that after coming out of like this quintessence dimension, more or less, that they ended up fighting and leaving. Uh, Lotor, Prince Lotor in Voltron comes back and it's been a few years. It's been some time um, since, you know, that since Voltron has been around. And in that time frame, uh, both the Blade of Marmora, which is the the Galra that are in resistance to the Galra Empire uh, and the kind of the Voltron Alliance that is formed with a bunch of different alien species have really been having a rough time of it. It's been a very, very rough time. And also, but you know, then kind of, well, we'll get into it because halfway through we start finding out what actually happened with Earth because what Voltron wants to do is, okay, all this stuff has happened. We got to get to Earth and we got to try and, and, you know, save the universe, save everybody from the Galra Empire. I mean, it is the universe because they are traveling literally intergalactically. Okay. It's not just within the Milky Way galaxy like a lot of science fiction. This is a genuinely like you are travel, you're traversing entire universe, the entire universe um, in, in the Voltron franchise. Uh, you know, they got to get to Earth and they're trying to get to Earth, but also Voltron doesn't have full power, so they can't really activate Voltron. So they're going at the speed that the average lion can go. And that's relatively slow. Um, and that the a good chunk, not not necessarily the first half, but the first few episodes of season seven is all about Voltron trying to get back to Earth. But it ha- it's doing it in an incredibly slow place, uh, it going for months and everything. And, you know, we have some new characters that are following along. There's the the cosmic wolf. Uh, uh, which, you know, let me tell you, the cosmic wolf in this, that's that's kind of what they call it. Um, the wolf that Keith ends up befriending in, I guess it would have been season six or whatever, is such a it's a, like I love this seems to be becoming a popular thing because you have, um, you know, of, of course, within Star Wars Rebels there, you know, you have the, the wolves in that that seem to be connected to the force somehow. Which really, we just know that Dave Filoni, who created Rebels and Clone, you know, and, and whatever, that that he he just loves wolves, <laughs> so he puts them in. Uh, they always felt the wolves kind of felt like an afterthought in Star Wars Rebels, as to where the cosmic wolf in Voltron Legendary Defender is a major, like becomes a major plot point and and solves a whole lot of problems and is a, just a really cool creature. It really works in Voltron Legendary Defender overall as compared to, I don't think the wolves work so well in Star Wars so far. Uh, so kudos to Voltron Legendary Defender uh, for, for that. But Anyway, we end up with, you know, we have another Altaian character. You have uh, Keith's mom, who is part of the Blade of Marmora and so on. I mean, and they're all kind of traveling along. And, you know, Shiro's back. Shiro gets healed. Um, and, you know, his consciousness gets extracted from from Black Lion and put put into his new body. And, of course, he ends up aging like we were talking about earlier and all this. I mean, all really cool stuff that happens in a very, very short period of episodes. Uh, but you end up with pretty much double the cast that Voltron has had historically, that Voltron Legendary Defender has had historically. Uh, and it works very well. And it's one of the amazing things. And in fact, this this will become this becomes even more important uh, as we get into kind of mid-season of season seven is just how quickly it's really impressive just how quickly uh, you start caring about. I mean, and this is total 
you know, total credit to the creators of the show and to the writers of the show, just how quickly you start caring about new characters. I mean, you seem to almost care about them instantly. Uh, and that's, I think that's also the power of the art style, the power of the writing, the power of the music. The music is a huge key to this. I really cannot wait. Hopefully when this show ends, they're going to put out a proper soundtrack release. And I wouldn't care if it was four disc and I wouldn't care if they charge 500 bucks for it. I'm going to get my hands on this because I mean, this is just the music and this is so precious. Some of the best music ever done for anything for, for any media, not, not just animated. I mean, fucking anything. Um, but the music, the art style and the storytelling and you know, all that ends up really somehow causing you to care for very new characters very very quickly i mean it's it's it, i've been saying that pretty much in every review but it's it's just it's the truth anyway long story short you know you have all you have that going on they're all just trying to get back to earth all these new characters and of course the paladins um in so doing they explore a lot more the abilities of the lions themselves but also the connection between the paladins and the lions, which I thought was really cool. Uh, to, and of course that becomes very important in the second half of this season. Uh, and this, this is another season where really they could have split it in half like they had been doing before too, because like the journey to earth could have easily just been season seven. Then season eight could have been what happens when they get to earth, you know, and, and really what is effectively very much a, a final battle, uh, as it were with the Gulra. Uh, and, you know, and then who knows what we would end up with in what would have been a season nine and maybe a season 10. It would have been nice if they rounded it up to season 10. That would have been all right with me, uh, even though at the same time, I'm glad that they didn't split the season up because, I mean, this is such a wild ride that you go on um, inside of 13, 20 some odd minute episodes. Uh, so, I mean, you can really watch this in a day pretty easily. And if you did, I mean, you, you would, you'd be breathless at the end of it. So anyway, uh, yeah, eventually they do get to Earth, and that's really what matters here, <laughs> okay, is that they do get to Earth, um, and around mid-season, then suddenly we get this nice two-episode reprieve from really what's happening with Voltron, and you find out what happened during that entire time that Voltron was gone, because again, remember, they, you know, they were in that quintessence dimension, and then they ended up, what is it, like four years in the future, something like that, or maybe it wasn't four years in the future, but they, they ended up some point in, in the future and where the Galaxy Alliance is in some real, or the Voltron Alliance is in real trouble. Um, and you find out that Pidge's dad, okay, he, he ends up getting back to Earth and he gives, you know, the the galaxy garrison, OK, which is, you know, what like the original members of the Voltron force were were originally uh, except for, of course, Shiro, who was already, you know, like a lieutenant or something, uh, you know, ends up getting that they were cadets for. Um, he ends up like explaining to them, OK, look, there's these things called the Galra. There's this thing called Voltron and it's all going to come this way. It's all coming to Earth. Eventually, the Galra are going to come to Earth and we've got to start getting ready for it. And Earth does start getting ready for it. And we get this two parter. Uh, it's like Earth's Last Stand or something like that is the title of it. And this is really, really cool shit for a lot of reasons. But what it really reminded me of, and I am sure if I asked the creators or the writers uh, that they did all of this on purpose. I mean, there's even like there, there's not direct references, but a lot of the terms are so similar that I think that they were shooting for it. Um, but you you effectively what they do is is so. All right. Hold on. Now, a year ago, it was a year, year and a half ago. Dynamite, uh, the, the Dynamite, the comic book company, they did a crossover with the original Voltron, not Voltron Legendary Defender, but Voltron and uh, Robotech. 
Okay, and it was really, really well done. I should do a review of it. Maybe the next Voltron uh, episode that I do, I'll, I'll do a review of uh, Voltron slash Robotech. But pretty much Voltron Legendary Defender did that. But they just put, I mean, you know, they didn't have like literal, you know, Robotech characters and Robotech, you know, the Veritex weren't actually there. But they more or less created on Earth with, again, there's a mixture of like Pidge's dad ends up you know, arriving in an Altaian shuttle. So they have access to Altaian technology and they start making like this earth slash Altaian hybrid technology. And they end up creating what are effectively Veritex. And not only that, they end up creating a, an entire battle cruiser, much like would, would happen with, you know, when earth gets access to Zentradi technology, right? They create that giant, you know, battle cruiser and they create the Veritex for Robotech, um, you know, on Macross Island. Right. So kind of a same idea here, but instead you have what's called the IGF Atlas, which is this massive ship, this massive spaceship that they create and or a space cruiser, you know, battle cruiser. And they end up creating these fighters, which they don't really transform like Veritex do, but they're for all intents and purposes, they're Veritex from Robotech. <laughs> I mean, even like even the way that they, uh, the, you know, like that the artistry is done to how they're flying these things. They call them MFEs, which means like multifunction extensibility fighter or something like that, whatever the hell it means. But anyway, it's MFE. Even the way they show that, I mean, it looks just like Roy Fokker, like, you know, you know, flying. the. <laughs> it's, re- it's really amazing. So Voltron Legendary Defender, mid-season of season seven, effectively bakes in Robotech. I mean, and it's a, it, it's, it's a straight lifting of, of, you know, the concept behind Robotech. And I have no problem with it. I think it's great. Like, I, I think that, I mean, that's, that's been Voltron Legendary Defender's one of its greatest strengths is that it's really pulling off of Star Wars. In fact, it's kind of doing Star Wars better than Star Wars does today, where it's taking all of these ideas from anime and science fiction and, you know, and all in comic books and all these, you know, different franchises and everything and turning it into one mega franchise. And that's really what they've done with Voltron. And it's beautiful. Uh, and bringing in Robotech esque, uh, uh, you know, technology and ideas and story, you know, plot lines. Bravo. I mean, bravo, boys. I mean, and, and you watch it. Trust me, you can't you can't mistake it. I mean, it's, it's so painfully, obviously Robotech, uh, but that's good. Like, I think it's a great thing. And having that crossover comic book from, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, really just kind of like pointed that this is really a direction to go because that, that comic book showed just how well these two universes mesh. And, uh, and well, anyway, we'll talk more about that a little bit later because when, you know, the whole, like a beautiful job that they do of building up suspense in this for when the Galra are finally going to come is that they keep talking about the IGF at, you know this i mean you see the mfes all the time and they have like you know young cadets flying and everything which is really cool but you know you keep hearing about the atlas but they never show it to you until much later in the season and then when you finally see it you're just like holy fuck and there's a million times when watching the season where you just keep saying holy fuck you know I mean, you can't you can't help it because everything just keeps evolving uh within it so anyway uh yeah you have the robotech uh, angle to it which i think was was really really cool um and that whole that whole time frame where they're building up the Earth's defenses and everything and how some of Earth's defenses really do shock when Sendak, who has taken over effectively the Galra Empire with, uh, you know, since there's been a power vacuum of Hagar and Lotor and, of course, um, you know, the big daddy uh, himself. Zarkon, uh, since, you know, none of them are around, he's really taken over and he's doing a hell of a job uh, as far as like in, as far as Imperial ways go. 
Uh, but it's it's really cool that even he gets surprised by just how advanced Earth be, Earth is when he arrives there because they don't expect it at all and it just works. But I mean, they start you know when the Galra get to Earth, they start wiping out because there's only one little the Galaxy gar- or the Garrison is the only place where they have any of these kind of defenses like the particle shield and so on uh, that can actually stand up toe to toe with you know, with whatever the Galra throw at it, but the rest of the earth, they just start ravaging. Um, and, and it's, you know, I mean, it, it, you feel the tragedy and everything. I mean, it's, it's really impressive how they, you know, how they pull that off. Um, but anyway, so eventually halfway through, you know, you get that two parter where you learn about how earth is standing up against the Galra and then Voltron comes back. And that's when things start getting, you know, really, really intense and really interesting. And they're trying to figure out how can, you know, how can we really stop Sendak? How can we save the earth effectively? And Sendak makes a point when he gets there, he's like, give me the lions of Voltron and I'll leave the earth alone. And there's an admiral who's in charge of the garrison forces, okay, of earth's defenses, who her and Pidge's dad are constantly at odds because she she effectively says, look, if we have the lions, like, let's surrender them and, you know, let's let's let them leave the earth. And eventually there's a betrayal that the Admiral engages in where, you know, she does try to work with Sendak when when Voltron finally does arrive. Um, and, of course, Sendak is like, well, thanks. But, you know, now fuck you. <laughs> you know, thanks for telling us their plans. Um, but, you know, now we're going to put a stop to them. Um, various things happen. And eventually they end up, you know, the, the IGF Atlas ends up getting launched and Voltron is there. And you get the big battle between the Galra forces led by Sendak versus the MFEs. Voltron and the IGF Atlas and it is a tremendous fucking battle I mean it this is you know on a scale and again the music's working for it the the artistry's working for it the writing's working for it you're just on the edge of your seat for entire episodes seeing this huge battle with these like three different badass elements on Earthside versus you know the Galra Uh, and it, it it just works it just works. And I haven't seen, honestly, this kind of this kind of action in anime, this kind of epic scale of battle. I haven't seen this kind of epic scale probably since like Gundam Wing, you know, and, and done with with as much panache since really. Yeah. Since I, I got to say since like Gundam Wing. I mean, it's it's that epic. It's that emotional because you already have again, you have these characters that you so quickly care about. You know, and some of them get put by the wayside, right? Like the other Altaian gal, not not the prin- not Princess Alora, but the other one. Um, you kind of forget about her, and the Cosmic Wolf sort of takes a back seat uh, during the kind of the epic battle, even though it's there. But it it you know the wolf does take a little bit of a back seat, even though it was integral, really, in the first half. Um, of the you know of the season and the other Altaian gal I think she's going to become very important in season eight so we'll you know that that's fine that they kind of make her a little bit of an afterthought uh, one of the cool parts that they do during this battle is when they do launch the Atlas effectively Shiro becomes the captain of the IGF Atlas which I thought was a great touch you know because he doesn't have Black Lion anymore Keith's flying Black Lion what are we going to do with Shiro come on like he's such a cool character uh you know we didn't kill him off like they did with Sven back in the you know back in the original 80s of Voltron like we got to give him something and for him to become the captain 
of the Atlas was, I thought, just a brilliant storyline move that I wouldn't have thought of. You know, I figured Pidge's dad would be in command of it the whole time, but no, they, they just end up giving it to Shiro, and, and it just works. Um, now, during this battle, there's a point where they, <laughs> which is amazing, in the last two episodes of this season, you know, they, they defeat Sendak. And and they kill him. I mean, Sendak dies, you know, and they end up beating the Galra. And then this thing kind of comes out of nowhere that starts attacking Voltron. And you're like, well, what the fuck is this? I mean, and it looks like, you know, it, it's kind of its own Voltron. It's not like a bunch of lions. It's one thing. But you it has a design language that you don't recognize from anything. Uh, but it can apparently drain the power away from Voltron as well as the Atlas. Like, it can drain Altaian energy, uh, I guess is what you would say, and I'm kind of letting the cat out of the bag here. But you, it's just this mysterious character that comes out of nowhere. You get no explanation, and it starts kicking every you know Voltron's ass and starts kicking the Atlas's ass, and it ends up, like, wiping out part, some of the MFEs. Uh, I mean, and you're wondering, what the hell is this? And so the first, the last two episodes, it's a two-parter. The first part, you beat the Galra, and then they have to deal with whatever the fuck this, you know, mecha uh, that I'll call it is, you know, like, what are we going to do about this? And the, the, you know, just when you think, because through much of this, like you're finding out that, that effectively the paladins can control the lions telepathically, which is interesting while they're imprisoned aboard Sendak ship. Of course, that's what allows them to get freed from it. Uh, you know, you're finding out that the lions have all these other abilities, you know, and so on. And like, so there's this constant, and, and this is part of what makes it so exciting is you keep finding out like these new abilities that the lions and that the Seltaian technology has, um, and that the paladins can do, uh, which is really cool. Um, <laughs> and in fact, there's a point where they're fighting this other mecha that, again, this mysterious mecha, I'll call it that, uh, where they're fighting it and it has two swords and it's taking them on. And of course, Voltron usually only has one. There's one point where, like, Keith says, you know, hey, oh, wow, uh, my, my Bayart port which is kind of their, their weapon that, you know, it, it's glowing. It can do something new. And they put it in. And I'll tell you, I was hoping that what Voltron was going to be, because again, it just keeps evolving these new abilities, which I think is great. Some people might think it's a cheap storyline trick or plot trick. I think it's awesome. I was hoping like that the classic sword would appear, that it would form the classic sword. Instead, all it does, Voltron just forms two swords so that it can match the two swords of this mysterious mecha. And whatever, that's fine. But okay, so you think, well, isn't that kind of anticlimactic? Oh boy, it can it can form two swords. What a surprise. Well, what really gets exciting <laughs> is that you know, it seems that this mysterious mecha beats Voltron and drains all of the energy out of it. And so what the hell are they going to do? And then it's attacking the Atlas and the Atlas is in trouble. Its shields are down, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, it just got done with the big battle with the Galra, the, you know, the entirety of the Galra Empire and Sendak. So, you know, Shiro starts having this vision as the captain of the ship. And next thing you know, he says, all right, everybody, you know, get ready. And and suddenly the Atlas starts doing something. And just when you think you can't go, what the fuck anymore? The Atlas turns into a fucking, uh, like a, you know, a mecha. It turns into like, like a Voltron kind of thing. <laughs> and you just go, holy shit. <laughs> like, what, what can happen next? And the thing is, is it's huge. Like, it is a gigantic fucking mech. I mean, like, you know, probably 20 times the size of Voltron. Like, it is a gigantic thing. And it starts attacking this mysterious mecha that had just defeated Voltron. Um, and, you know, eventually Voltron gets repowered to various things. And but you're just going, oh, you know, I mean, it's, it's like when you saw the first time if you're watching Transformers back, you know, in the generation one days in the 80s. 
you know, and you're, you're, you you learn about like uh, like Autobot City or Metroplex, right? And then you finally see Metroplex actually transform into a, you know into an Autobot into like you know bipedal Autobot. It's like that, and you just go, holy crap! And you, and you just keep wondering what's next. That's why I kept, that's why I was saying earlier with season eight, like what do you do next? Like you have this you have this badass battle cruiser that you build for Earth, you know the Atlas, and then you know inside of three or four episodes of you finally or two episodes of you seeing the thing then you find out the thing can transform you know <laughs> into a giant mech <laughs> i i mean it just keeps they they keep stacking it up i i just i can't imagine what's next and clearly the atlas is the replacement like gets talked about throughout the first half of the season is the replacement for the castle of lions which you lose uh in season six and it's a good one like i mean nice job you know and it has to be that big to be able to fit the lions in it right even though we never see the lions really dock in it uh in this season obviously that's the point um and the atlas does survive uh season seven so, I mean, that that was just crazy. But anyway, Voltron gets repowered. They end up defeating um, this mysterious mecha. And, you know, season seven ends with, you know, we've with a, a like a very rousing speech by Shiro where he calls them the defenders of the universe, which is, of course, a nice uh, homage to, uh, you know, to the 80s Voltron cartoon. Um, and. You know, it shows Earth rebuilding after everything that the Galra did to it. And now it's part of a galaxy alliance because there's aliens on Earth now from like all the different species that came together to form the Voltron Alliance. And it's a it's a very nice ending. But then you get uh, then you get at the very end, you get the hook, you get the you know, the cliffhanger. And the cliffhanger is, is that they stored the mysterious Mecca away in some bay, you know, at the garrison. And they finally cracked it open to find its power source because they're wondering what was powering it that allowed it to drain power from the Atlas and Voltron. And there's an Altaian inside. Dun, 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 dun. And I think this is pretty clearly uh, this is or what I my guess as to what this actually is, what this mysterious Mecca is, is that we know from season six that. Lotor, Prince Lotor, was had that secret Altaian colony where he was taking Altaians to and he was experimenting on them and so on. Um, this is probably the byproduct of Lotor's experiments on Altaians and, quint- and, and you know, using quintessence and everything. Uh, so we'll probably find out more about that in season eight. And I'm going to go out, I'm going to put out a, a, some speculation. I, I like to speculate responsibly, but I'm going to put out a speculation that we might get like Altea might be completely reborn by the end of season eight and it could be kind of the the center of the universe you know um maybe it'll be reborn on earth i don't know but i think we're going to end up having Altea back and maybe even princess alora's dad will come back the king there uh but anyway that, that that's just a guess on my part uh but very 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 interesting cliffhanger and a good one you know and yes of course you know like i said it's nice that we got to have a breather between or, you know, we got a little bit of a breather between certain seasons, but I don't mind this cliffhanger because, I mean, you had to tell us where this was going to go next. Otherwise, we'd have no fucking clue. And I don't think there'd be any excitement, perhaps, for season eight. Um, so ending off season seven, I still say that this is easily the best show is still the best show on TV, whatever TV means today. Uh, this is easily the best show running still. Uh, and season seven just just proved it even more so uh, because it was so, so fucking intense. The action was just incredible. Everything about it, the emotions that, that get parlayed, all of it, especially in 13, 20 minute episodes, that is no small feat, but they pulled it off. Uh, so it's a shame that future series it seems that dreamworks is producing are you know are not as widespread and demographic and intensity of what they can 
you know, of what they're trying to reach and what they're trying to do. Example, She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. Um, but season seven of Ultron, I mean, hit all the right notes. It was really, really, really brilliant um, in, in how they pulled this off. And I thought season seven, I don't know that it might be the best season, partly because of the addition of, you know, the Robotech story elements uh, and Robotech effectively technology. I mean, it's not Robotech, but it is. So a couple bonus elements that I thought were nice in this season. Uh, I think that actually it looks like Allura and um, Lance are actually like going to become a romantic thing. I think that's great uh, that that, you know, Lance and Allura like I, I dig it. OK, even though I was digging and I wish they would have went further with the low tour Allura thing. But whatever uh, that that looks like that was starting to build up. And I think that that's really, uh, you know, that's exciting. Um, the other the other cool thing was they they kept with with more of the more of the earth technology they kept quoting and they've done this before too but they kept quoting the classic line when you would go when in the 80s voltron cartoon when they would go into the lions all of the paladins or the space explorers in that sense would say uh you know mega thrusters activated dynatherms connected voltron is go right and let's go Voltron Force. That's kind of the classic thing they would say. They kept talking about the mega thrusters and they kept saying Dynath like they would say Dynatherms connected and everything in this season. And at some point, I wouldn't mind because this show has at points taken time to explain uh, new terms that they use. Not the Dynatherms is a new term. Again, it's a borrowed term from back in the back in the 80s. I'd love for them to explain what the fuck dinotherms are <laughs> because there's a few points where they say, oh, the dinotherms aren't connected. <laughs> and I love hearing it. And I, I mean, I've said that I, you know, like a million times when I've either started a car or some kind of vehicle that I've been in, I have said dinotherms connected like more times in my life than I could count. Uh, so, so I love it. Uh, but I, I would really appreciate it if they maybe wanted to explain, at least in this Voltron, uh, what the dinotherms are. But I thought that that was nice that they kept referencing them because it's such a well-known line um, from the original Voltron cartoon. Yeah, yeah, nice touch. You know, I, I, I like that respect, uh, you know, really being being paid here. So, uh, yeah, I mean, in every time, like, they'd always be mentioned, like, because, fuck, like, in this season, it just seemed like it was super weapon versus super weapon, and then there'd be another super weapon, then another super weapon. You know, like, there's the big, the big gun that effectively Sendak made on Earth and all this... I, uh, I mean, you know, if you're into science fiction, a lot of times, like for the technology, this is really your show <laughs> because that was so cool <laughs> to just like constantly have. And then once you think a super weapon showed you all of its abilities, then it have another one. And oh, man, it just they, they just kept building up and building up and evolving. And I, I boy, I think that's so badass. So anyway, all right. I want to wrap this up. Uh, this has gone kind of long, but then it was a longer season of, uh, of Voltron. So, you know, for it to go longer than the usual uh, 20 minutes or so that I spend on reviewing one season of Voltron generally, it makes sense for it to go double that. Um, but I want to review the Voltron Voltron Legendary Defender comic books, volume one and two from Line Forge Comics. Uh, and then in the when season eight comes out, by that time, volume three of the Voltron Legendary Defender comic will be out. So I want to review those uh, quickly and then we'll wrap this up. So the first thing I think to understand with the Voltron Legendary Defender comics, both Volume 1 and Volume 2, and really Volume 3, I think, even though, so Volume 1 and Volume 2 are both written by uh, Tim Hedrick, who is the main writer behind uh, Voltron Legendary Defender, and of course well known for what he's done with uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, Legend of Korra, and so on. Um, 
the th- volume three is only written by Mitch Iverson, who's like a co-writer for the for volume one and volume two. Uh, but I don't know, like so far what I've read of volume three, I've liked now the important thing to understand with all of these with volumes one through three, again, volume three is still ongoing is it feels just like an episode of Ultron. Like, I mean, it, the artistry is there. The comedy is, in fact, the comedy is really there. That's one thing, you know, when I was actually kind of re going over these comics after watching season seven, which, you know, came out in August, uh, beginning of August, is uh, season seven a little lighter on the comedy. I mean, it's still there, but a little lighter as to where amazingly Legendary Defender, which, again, is a show designed. I mean, obviously, it looks like it's mainly designed for kids, but it's really for all demographics. But what was amazing is, is how many times I laugh out loud watching the show. Uh, and I mean, it's another one of the reasons that I consider it one of the best show or the best show on television, just because it can make you laugh out loud while at the same time it can be just like season seven where it's action, 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 intense, emotion, lost, you know, all that. Um, so the comic books are a bit lighter hearted, but no less interesting. Now with volume one, volume one's very simple. Uh, volume one takes place. And again, I think these are technically considered canon because they get talked about um, by Tim Hedrick you know, as if they're like really a thing. And there's nothing in them that I've seen so far where it contradicts anything that's going on in the show proper. So, yeah, I mean, since they're done by the head writer, I would assume that, hey, you know, these are the real deal. Um, And Mitch Iverson's a writer, you know, for the show as well. So, I mean, it just it all kind of fits. So volume one takes place and it's just called volume one takes place between uh, in season one between the episodes Rebirth and Crystal Venom, which I think are episode eight and nine. Uh, And it's a basic, you know, training the, the Voltron team in some kind of situation. Now, what's really interesting about this is that and I've pointed this out in previous Voltron Legendary Defender reviews is that there's a bit of kind of symbolism and alchemy and, and you know, getting into kind of the, the dark arts, as it were. I mean, as in historical dark arts on Earth, um, like there, there's some there's some some odd symbolism, even in season seven, where you have like that Shiro is missing his left arm almost, you know, if one wanted to go far enough. You could almost say that that was like representative of the left hand path and of, you know, maybe like Freemasonry, where when you wear a uniform or like kind of one of the initial uniforms in Freemasonry as you're going through the degrees is where like your, oh, maybe it's your left leg and your right arm that's that's kind of uncovered. But anyway, I mean, one one could go into those directions. That, that's a whole other thing. Um, but volume one, kind of the main thing that they're taking on, first off, they're looking for a pearl which if one wanted to get into some kind of symbolism, you know, you could kind of think Pearl of Great Price. But regardless of any of that, okay, uh, maybe the most blatant bit of symbolism or, yeah, yeah, symbolism or symbology? Yeah, symbolism. The most blatant bit of symbolism in in Volume 1 is the Sphinx. And, like, there is a great Sphinx of the universe that they have to encounter, and that gives them this riddle. Now, the interesting thing is, is that this Sphinx, like it has it has the Voltron force go through a certain like all these different tests. Right. And what's really fascinating about that is that Pidge has to play it in a game of chess. And it's a, and Pidge is like, wait a minute. How do you you know, you're the great Sphinx of the universe. You're out here. How do you know about chess? He's like, did you read that from my mind? And he says, no, I've been to your planet before. 
and I taught them chess. Uh, and, and then he cracks this funny joke as uh, the, the, the Sphinx does cracks this funny joke about like how humans tried to make the king the most powerful uh, like, you know, piece in the game. But really, you know, eventually they learned their lesson that it isn't the most powerful piece. Of course, the Sphinx is alluding to the fact that the queen is really the most powerful. But that was really interesting. Like they, they sort of tossed in okay this is how this is this is where the sphinx came from in egypt right was this great sphinx of the universe and this is where chess came from i mean it's just a fun little thing that they toss in there right and one could get into kind of the egyptian game of of ket or the pseudo egyptian game of ket and and kind of get into that which is sort of like what they call or what some modern game companies call laser chess but that's again another one of those you know, long stories that you'd have to get into. Uh, but I thought that that was pretty interesting where there's still more of that looking at kind of ancient history, getting into some alchemy and things like this, that, that I've mentioned this show seems to dabble in from time to time. And then maybe we'll see more of in season eight. I don't know. Uh, but I thought that that was, that was pretty interesting. Um, and, and it was, again, volume one was actually, was very funny, uh, at, at, at certain points, which also that's another hard thing to do is for a comic book to genuinely make me laugh. Um, but this delivered on that. So volume one, pretty standard fare, a standard fare of a story, uh, volume two, little more interesting. Now this is called this, this volume is called pilgrimage. And in volume two, you have this species that the Voltron uh, that Voltron is helping get to their sacred hunter land. And it's like they, they almost look like Thundercats, uh, the species, which is fine if they wanted to integrate Thundercats. Like we said earlier, they're already integrating Robotech. Why the fuck not bring it all on? Um, but they're called I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's the Davdaba, the Davdaba, something like that. Anyway, they're like this cat like species. Um, now, the interesting thing with this, I mean, there, there's some really cool action sequences that go on within it. Um, and this one takes place in season two, right between the episode Shiro's Escape and Greening the Cube. So right in, the, right in between those two. Again, these, there's no reason these aren't considered canon. I mean, if you have Iverson and Hendrick, and Hedrick doing, doing the writing, why not? Um, but there's... <laughs> There's some funny shit in this. In fact, there's a couple of interesting comments, like I were mentioning earlier about how, like, there's a character of, was it Veronica uh, in season seven who appears to be lesbian? And of course, we're talking about how Shiro is gay. Um, there's a point where these two daughters of the king of the Devdaba, if, if I'm pronouncing that right, they want to, you know, like the Voltron team says, okay, we'll help you get to your sacred hunting ground now that the, since the Galra destroyed the planet that you were on. And so the king dies, the king of these people die, and the two daughters, you know, like it's their custom to marry, uh, you know, the biggest and strongest of, you know, whoever's around. And that happens to be Hunk from Voltron. And, <laughs> but the thing is, is they both want, to, they're both going to marry him. They both say, yeah, well, you know, we'll marry you. And of course he says, whoa, 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 whoa I'm not, I'm not into that. We don't do that on my home world. But then, you know, saying multiple, you know, plural marriage, but then Pidge jumps in and says, oh yes, we do. You know, we do plural, uh, plural relationships. And, and I was like, Oh man, I mean, Pidge is just dropping in polyamory, you know, because we're talking about way in the future here. I mean, sure, maybe there are Mormons, you know, uh, you know, on Earth during the time of Voltron, but really, I mean, Pidge is just just kind of like you know, really quietly dropping in a reference to polyamory, and I thought that that was dynamite. And that's not the only 
uh, shall we say, unconventional relationship style that gets dropped in volume two of the comic series. Um, but anyway, what ends up happening is, is these two daughters of the of this king of these cat like people, uh, they they decide that they will they will fight to to prove which one is worthy of of Hunk's love and everything, and it, it makes for some some pretty good comedy. Hunk is excellent uh, comic relief within the show. Um, but then what gets more interesting is there's a point where Allura, Princess Allura, gets mad um, while on the ship, and for an instant. Like the the two the two princesses effectively the two daughters of the of that king of the, the cat like people the, the Devdaba, uh, they say whoa she's actually the most powerful and she seemed bigger than Hunk when she was angry like that, and their eyes kind of go to hearts like that they fell in love with Princess Alora so there's lesbianism or you know bisexuality uh, actually you know more specifically uh, you know on display here pretty. Pretty. I mean, you could say it's implicit, but I think it's fairly explicit that they're putting that on. So I really appreciate that. Again, the show really does try to 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 tap into those, or you know, kind of dip the toes into those waters of unconventional lifestyles and all. Which, for fuck's sake, of course, you know, we're talking about the future of Earth here, or free future humans, and who knows what else. And Princess Laura doesn't seem to be too offended either by the fact. Uh, I I thought that that was that was brilliant. But anyway, ends up with a really great. Uh, battle sequence at the end of it um i mean these both both volumes have been real page turners uh especially when you can read them all at once and i kind of recommend doing it that way one issue at a time it doesn't it doesn't hold up as well but when you do it all at once uh, i mean really it, it feels like very much like you're watching an episode you know right off of netflix it's 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 that well done and the artistry just lends itself so well to the comic book panels uh that that i mean you really can't tell the difference so i highly recommend um reading both of these uh both of these volumes and volume three when that gets finished i'll do a review of that probably when season eight comes out um i did also buy a book because I, because again, I love this show. Uh, again, best show on television. Um, I bought the Paladin's Handbook, the Voltron, or the like, the Voltron Compendium. There's the Paladin's Handbook, then there's Voltron's Compendium. I, I, I got the Compendium, which I thought was going to be kind of like an encyclopedia, and it's. It doesn't really have any, like, terribly insightful information. I mean, it kind of is an encyclopedia, but it's definitely geared more towards kids. So you can kind of steer clear of that one if you want. But do not steer clear of these comic books. They are brilliant, uh, very well done, and I really appreciate, especially in Volume 2, the, again, the, the really the references to polyamory and to bisexuality. I thought that that was, that was dynamite uh, for them to do. Uh, no pun intended, because Dynamite didn't make these comics. Again, it was Lion, Lion Forge comics, which that's a pun in itself, right? Because <laughs> of the lions, you know, Voltron's lions. So anyway, uh, that's it. So yeah, season seven, it's the show is just still rocking. I'm just, it's going to be sad when it goes. When season eight hits, I hope maybe we can get like a little movie or something in the end. And I don't mean a live action film or anything. I mean, just an animated uh, kind of like a Fleet of Doom sort of movie like we got with the original Voltron and so on. Uh, that would be pretty cool. Maybe they'll do a sequel series of some kind. I, I really, there's no need to do vehicle Voltron. Just don't go there. You know, like there, there's just no fucking need. Um, but this was, yeah, season seven, really cool. And the comic books highly recommended. So anyway, that'll be it for this episode, uh, for your, your latest Voltron legendary defender review. Uh, and we will review, uh, season eight when it comes out and probably when season eight comes out, 
there will also be the third Godzilla anime uh, movie that'll come out, and we'll review both of those back to back, like we have been recently with Voltron: Legendary Defender, and also I will review uh, Volume Three of the comic book series, and I think I might review the Robotech. The real Robotech slash Voltron crossover, which isn't related to Legendary Defender, um, but certainly Legendary Defender is is going all in on on Robotech stylings anyway, which I, I couldn't be happier about. So anyway, all right, that really is it for this episode. I will see all of you woo, on the other side.